Just look, just put him in the wardrobe, all right? What's it going to hurt? Then if you need him, you got him, all right? Then I got to have a conversation with that wardrobe assistant. And man, she's a real bitch. I just don't, please. Look, Randy, I'm asking you to help me out, man. If the answer's no, the answer's no. Not no with excuses. Hey, man, this ain't an Andy McLaughlin picture, you know. I can't afford to hire a bunch of guys who smoke cigarettes and sit around talking to each other all day on the chance that I might get to use them. I got a four-man team here, Rick. If I need more than that, I got to get it approved. And, you know, I got to look after my dudes. Hey, and if your dudes were a better match for me, I'd say, okay, you got me. But that's not the case, and you know it. He's a great match for me. Yeah, yeah. Hey, you could do anything you want to him. Throw him off a building, all right? Light him on fire. Hit him with a Lincoln, right? Get creative. Do what you want. He's just happy for the opportunity. Rick. Yeah? I don't dig him, and I don't dig the vibe he brings on a set. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to the Swift Shift. My name is Zachary Brown. I'm with Cafe Content. I'm your co-host. With me today, your other co-host, the outlaw filmmaker, Sean Swift. How you doing today, sir? <laughs> I'm doing I'm doing great. Thanks, man. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. Sean, did you uh, officially start your production company this week? I did. So I actually got all the, the stuff in today uh, from the state of Texas that said it's all official. So Dead Muddy White Horse Productions is uh, officially here in Austin now, and uh, I've actually got uh, someone working on a logo uh, with me, and uh, then once I get that going, I'll start having, uh, you know, an Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and social media presence to start really kind of promoting some stuff that we're that I'm going to be doing through that. So this is the Swift Shift, and what we do on the Swift Shift is we talk about things that we like. We talk about what we're watching, kind of what we're doing. Um, we've started with one of our favorite uh, filmmakers, Quentin Tarantino. And we're really excited today because we get to talk about his just released film, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And I'm really excited to get started on that. But before we do, I, I want to lay out a blanket spoiler. You guys, we're going to talk about everything. We want this to be a free-flowing podcast, so I don't want to be worried about spoiling stuff for you. We're going to spoil everything. We know what you <laughs> did last. We know what you did last summer, and we're going to spoil that too. Yeah, we're going exactly. <laughs> to spoil your pears. We're going to spoil your peaches. <laughs> we're going to spoil everything. So. Yeah. Rotted refrigerator of spoilers here. Exactly. We are the bad apples that's ruining the bunch. This podcast is going to come out about a week after the release of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So if you haven't seen Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, when we get to the chapters, I would advise seeing the movie first because you really don't want to want this film to be spoiled for you. Yeah. I had such a such a great time at the movies watching this movie, and I think you did too, Sean. I did. I've, I actually enjoyed it so much that I've seen it three times already. So I, <laughs> I really I'm so jealous it. of you. I'm yeah. so jealous of you. <laughs> I, I, I might try to see it again. Who knows? I, I probably will. <laughs> So before we get to that, I wanted to ask you, Sean, kind of what you've been working on the past week creatively. Um, I know you just started your production company and maybe a little bit of what's influenced you in the past week. What have you been watching? Yeah, so uh, obviously uh, I 
went and saw Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. That was the big one. Uh, sure, also... spent 10 hours watching that three times. <laughs> yeah. uh, I also managed to go see uh, Joe Dante's Piranha last week, which is pretty cool. Then very recently, I am getting into the words of Richard Linklater because he's got a new one coming out in a couple of weeks. And I've seen a good bit of his stuff, but I'm trying to sort of get caught back up with some link later uh so that when i go see where'd you go bernadette i you know have, have been caught up on some of his work and i'm gonna be in the right mindset uh working on uh i started writing a feature length script uh that i and i'm sort of like researching it and and writing at the same time uh because it's i'm, I'm also doing sort of a period piece and, and stuff like that and so i'm uh looking to do it here in austin uh, and I've been researching Austin in the era that, that I'm trying to go for. And then just, I wrote like, kind of like an opening, like 10 pages that I'm pretty happy with. And The period piece in Austin sounds like an interesting project. Yeah. I bet you could use kind of local historians if you wanted to, to fill out the, the backstory of that script. Oh, absolutely. And it's funny. There's a lot of stuff just online uh, that you can find. And then, like, we've got a library here that's going to be full of great information. So, yeah, I don't know. It seems I'm very excited about the project. I don't want to talk too much about it until I, you know, have a little bit more of what I'm going for with it. Uh, but, yeah, I think it's going to be a really, really fun thing to go and make when the time comes. It'll just my big thing now is looking at it and going, OK, like, how do I uh, do this where it's feasible financially you know i can't write a 20 million dollar movie and then be like okay like let me see if i can raise money i have to you know obviously balance to where it's something i can find the financing for and, and to go and make it so well you don't you don't have millions of dollars to maybe crash a plane into austin or something I, like that i figured i figured this first one's the one that's going to get me those millions so, gotcha you know, i just have gotcha. to make the first one and, and you know, and then we'll go from there <laughs> hey you said you needed a cheap project for your production company, yeah. and we're in, we're in the era of sequels and remakes. How about Slacker Two, the reslackering? The, the reslackering. Uh, that sounds amazing. <laughs> Slacker, <laughs> no, that's a horrible legit. idea. That's yeah. why no one's asking me to start a production company. <laughs> so yeah, I spent my week doing what I always do. I'm a garbage artist. I make garbage art. This is what I like to do. I've talk to you a little bit about i make music in a in a literal shed uh with a friend mm -hmm. of mine and uh he made me do two things this week he made me scream into a microphone which no one ever needs to hear and then he <laughs> made me like kind of sublime rap in the, in a song as well just i, think, I was to I think totally uncomfortable yeah absolutely <laughs> not absolutely not i bury that deep in the mattress um but i did uh, spend my time this week. I've been watching it for three seasons. The Handmaid's Tale on Hulu. It's uh -huh. based on a Margaret Atwood novel that I loved when I was younger. Um, it's got Elizabeth Moss in it, who may be one of the greatest uh, working actresses of our time. Shout out to Mad Men. Yeah. And if do you know the the plot of Handmaid's Tale, Sean? I don't. So I I have heard so much great so many great things about it and it's one of those that i've just not sat down and, and watched yet it's on my list it's on my radar uh it's just a matter of like carving out the time to sit down and watch it but i'm very intrigued i've heard almost nothing but great things 
Sure. So the basic story outline is that it's a dystopian future where the religious right has taken over and there's a massive patriarchy in charge in which women are categorized in the three places in society. They're either the wife, the handmaid, who is kind of the birthing position in society, and then the nurses who kind of take care of the wife and the handmaid. It's okay. it's really interesting, and honestly, it could be black and white, but there's so much gray area. Uh, you follow Elizabeth Moss as she tries to, at the at the beginning, very small rebellions, but then uh, as the seasons go on, bigger and bigger rebellions. Okay. But why? I, but why I think you would dig it is the cinematography. The people making it really know how to shoot a scene and really oh. know how to. A hit perspective in a different way and also use music which is you know one of the things that i like about quentin tarantino they know right. how to juxtapose kind of this really big suffering with music that you wouldn't place in that scene naturally sure. yeah okay um yeah i reckon i soft recommend this because it's very depressing and then the last thing i saw this week which is a date movie but not a good date movie is Spider-Man far from home. Have you seen this? I have not. So I'm, I'm a little sort of burnt out on the Marvel and DC universes. I went and I, I finally went and got to, I got to go see uh, the Avengers Endgame like a month and a half ago. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and you know, and I, you were the only person on earth who hadn't seen it. Uh, but so no, I've not seen spot the new Spider-Man. I've heard it's very good as well though. Yeah, it's not. I'm just going to say really? this. I took I took my nephew and and look, if you like movies where the hero is right about everything and the okay. bad guy is bad and okay. that's kind of the beginning and end of it and you're 13, which is what they're making these movies for, yeah. then you may really like it. However, what my nephew of 13 years old said was there wasn't enough Spider-Man in it. You get a lot of Tom Holland, not a lot of like web slinging. Oh um, wow! Okay. Yeah. Now the web slinging you get is amazing. Um, sure. But course. he's yeah. You know, you're. I think they go into character development a little more. The problem is no one has any character, and no one knows how to develop <laughs> characters in the movie. Yeah, um, that makes sense. I, you know, I'm still very, uh, I'm very hardcore on the Raimi spider-man trilogy i like those i think those that's are... because you're old sean that's because you're old yeah. <laughs> I, even, I, I know and i i think spider-man 2 is still the best superhero movie that's ever been made call me old-fashioned i guess i'm turning into the old man who yells at the who, kids who likes his original spider-man <laughs> I, yeah i like you know i like the spider-man from 1950 not not this new age get yeah. off my web yeah, yeah get out of my web you <laughs> all right well i mean we've spent too much time on everything else but once in a, once upon a time in hollywood you ready yeah. to get into it oh i can't wait chapter one anybody order fried sauerkraut okay so chapter one I thought we would discuss the themes of this movie because it is just soaked in things that I think Quentin Tarantino is trying to say. Whether he's trying to say it with the actors, whether he's trying to say it with the time that he said it in, 
whether he's trying to say it with the accuracies and inaccuracies that he chooses to put into the film. What did you get hit over the head with, with the theme of this movie? So I think, as you said, there's a lot, it's like an onion. There's a lot of layers. I picked up on stuff, even, you know, when I watched it the second and third time, uh, I think the big thing is the the friendship. It's almost like a, a brotherhood friendship between Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt. Uh, and then the no, this idea of staying relevant in an industry where it's very easy to become irrelevant. So yeah, I think that the film is essentially, it is about this friendship between these two older males. You know, they're supposed to be, I guess in like their late forties to early fifties in Hollywood, 1969. So I think that's essentially what, to me, what the film is about is just how these two guys, uh, you know, sort of keep each other up and, and the friendship and what each one brings strength and and weaknesses to the table in this friendship the juxtaposition of cliff booth and rick dalton the characters Mm -hmm. is what makes this movie and it's interesting because before you see the movie what did you hear about you heard about sharon tate you heard about the manson murders you you heard about kind of the hollywood machine and all that is in there but the that's window dressing to the structural elements that is the friendship between these two people. You yeah. you mentioned how they're getting older and uh, Rick Dalton is kind of, I wouldn't call him a has-been, though he calls himself a has-been in the movie. Yeah. And he is, he, the weight of this fame that he is he no longer has is really tear him, tearing him apart. Yeah. And you, you juxtapose that with Cliff Booth, who is... Almost and never was like he yeah. you he walks into his trailer like his act not his trailer on a movie set the his, trailer that he lives in he lives in behind a drive-in movie theater it's by himself you know it's him which is just truck. Quentin Tarantino like yeah. dreaming up where he would want to live you know yeah exactly yeah <laughs> um, but I, you I see on the TV yeah me I, too yeah I was like I I, I want to live behind that drive-in movie theater that was like a lot of fun. <laughs> But you see on the TV in his trailer, uh, him singing on television. He's like watching his old tapes on television. Did you notice that? I'm sure you did. I did, yeah. Seeing it three times. So you see that they're like, it was almost a dream that never was for (laughs) Cliff Booth. Yeah. Which is really interesting to say, hey, these are two people who are aging, who are not in the prime of either of their careers. One is taking it super hard on the outside. And the the other one is Mr. Cool, but as you go through the movie, as you get to know this character, you can tell he's carrying this tremendous weight, which is just absolutely what makes the movie. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, as you said, Rick Dalton, played by DiCaprio, he, you know, he's he's almost an alcoholic. I mean, he uh, when when Cliff drops him off. Uh, after this meeting with a producer, he goes and makes himself like eight whiskey sours. And so when he goes to set the next day, he's very hungover. He looks and feels like garbage. And it's all because in his mind, he is this washed up actor that nobody you know, has any respect for. But the reality of it is, is that he's got a pretty nice house in the Hollywood Hills and he's consistently working. Uh, he's just not the leading man anymore. And 
so in his mind that you know it's like his career's gone down the tube and with Cliff Booth is ultimately unhireable uh, and the work that he he is he has been able to get has been solely for because of Leonardo DiCaprio but he's very uh, cool about it on the outside whereas DiCaprio's not but go so go ahead yeah you've lived in California um, I have did you live in this area at all uh, I will not not in the Hollywood Hills uh, oh sure sure yeah. uh, I did live in uh, Van Nuys uh, so you know I, the Van Nuys drive-in theater obviously is not there anymore or uh, you know I'm sure that they sort of recreated it from where it was at uh, but yeah, I definitely like when they're like whizzing around the streets of Hollywood and Los Angeles, I recognized all of that stuff, which was really cool. And that's, I think, another theme of this movie is that as you see the characters are kind of aging out, mm-hmm. the place, the setting is aging out too. It's There's one amazing scene set at Spawn Ranch. Spawn Ranch oh, wow. used to be this place where they would film uh, Westerns, yeah. and now it's become kind of this hippie commune. Right. Um, you were just talking about the drive-in theater isn't there anymore. The ever-evolving landscape of California is kind of a theme in the movie as well. Someone using setting, using what you see on the screen to tell a story is just one of the many reasons why this movie, I thought this movie was amazing. Totally. Absolutely. Another thing that I wanted to address was how hippie culture is portrayed in the movie. So most of the hippie culture that you see is through the Manson family, which is its own offshoot. Yes. But even the hippies that you don't see, all the characters talk about how they're garbage how they're not worth anything and it's interesting because it's 1969 so it's it's actually the tail end it's the last gasp of the hippie movement yeah and it's we're recontextualizing all right so when i grew up hippie culture was idolized and like hey man they knew what was going on all the (laughs) all the people who were hippies before hit the 90s boom and became kind of these corporate success people and in this movie you kind of see the bad side of the hippie culture the drugs the the false prophets how what they thought was going to happen didn't happen and so you see them all sitting around a tv smoking pot watching television yeah and they all kind of become the thing that they hated which is like it's the worst thing that happened to environmentalist progressives that the hippie culture gave into the drug culture i thought that was uh, he portrayed that perfectly he really did and i it was kind of funny i even like when i would watch it i i wondered if he was like trying to channel how people in hollywood or how just people in general looked at hippies or if Tarantino himself was just like these hippies, you know, like they need to go out and get a job because the, you know, one of the first things you see is uh, Rick and Cliff pull up in the, you know, in the Hollywood streets and there are these hippies just like standing out on the sidewalk, minding their own business. And uh, DiCaprio's character, you know, kind of curses under his breath. I mean, he, he very from the get go does not like the hippie culture. And then, as you said, like later on, you start to see more and more of them, but through the lens of the Manson family. And obviously they were sort of brainwashed and and had some more sinister intentions going on. And so it does not put the, the hippie or the hippie movement in a positive light. 
the television shows that he is doing these guest spots on are asking him to kind of dress more like a hippie. Let's put a, a handlebar mustache on you. Uh, and I thought that was kind of a funny scene, too, is when he shows up to this set and the director comes in and he's very excited to have him on this uh, on this production, on this pilot of a TV show. And he starts telling him that he wants to like put all this stuff on him so that people don't recognize him. Leo's uh, like, why would like, you do that? Yeah, Shouldn't they like, know it's me? <laughs> yeah, he's like, wait a minute now. He's like, if you put all this this makeup and mustache and, and he even calls it. He says, you put all this junk on me. Uh, how are people going to know that it's me? Chapter two, the assassination of Cliff Booth by the coward Rick Dalton. We have already talked about the interactions between Brad Pitt and Leonardo, Leonardo DiCaprio in this movie, and it's hard to talk about anything about this movie without talking about that. Right. I did want to get into some of the amazing scenes, some of the the real character development things that Quentin Tarantino put into these characters. And I think the only way to start is to see what you thought. Do you think Cliff Booth killed his wife? Yeah, I do. <laughs> it's a big uh, question, Sean. It's a big question. It, it oh, is. you do think he killed his wife? I, to I totally think he killed his wife, yeah. I think... Uh, you know, so the, the scene in question is, is that they are out on a boat out in the middle of the ocean. It's obvious that it's an unhappy marriage from the get go because it shows this wife who is just like trying to start an argument with him. And he comes up in like this scuba gear, pops a, a beer and just kind of stares at her holding this like harpoon gun, <laughs> like right at her. And then it cuts away, and so it doesn't ever answer the question. But yeah, I, I don't think that it ever alludes that he didn't kill his wife, and I, I to me, it's one of those, uh, you know, I think he did it. He Again, we'll probably talk about this a, a little bit later, but he seems to have a kind of a violent streak in him, and I, to me, it's like I think the wife pushed him to where he did something and he got away with it and he knows he got away with it, which sort of adds to the cockiness of the character. When Leonardo DiCaprio, when Rick Dalton is trying to get him all these jobs, mm -hmm. everybody's like, Hey, we don't want to work with him. We yeah. think he killed his wife. Uh, my wife think he thinks he killed his wife. So <laughs> he can't work with us in a great scene when he meets the wife in the, um, in the Bruce Lee scene. Yeah. But what I think is ingenious with Quentin Tarantino is that he doesn't show that Cliff Booth killed his wife, that yeah. he leaves it up to the audience to decide yeah. um, what they think. And because you want to like the character, you want to believe that he didn't. Yeah. Uh, if Quentin Tarantino had showed him kill, killing his wife, which I think earlier in Tarantino's career, he may have shown Cliff Booth he, killing his wife. There may, there may be a scene on the cutting room floor <laughs> that just got cut from the movie for that exact reason you just don't know but uh and so like you say if you see him kill his wife because she's arguing with him it takes away from that you're not going to like that character anymore so if you remember where the where the boat scene where he may or may not have killed his wife occurs mm -hmm. he is thinking about a time when he was in so yeah. he was a stuntman in a tv show 
and yep. he was fighting with Bruce Lee, and yeah. he remembers the time where he was on the boat with his wife, standing uh, on top of R- Rick Dalton's r- roof, trying to fix his antenna. Yeah. So it's a flashback on a flashback, which is just you, you're going crazy, Tarantino. You're going crazy. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's like Inception. It's like what? Yeah. Which dream world am I in right now? <laughs> yeah. What did you think of the Bruce Lee scene? Oh, and I, I've seen so much, I guess, controversy coming out around that scene this week where people are not happy with how Bruce Lee is portrayed. I think that scene is is comical. I think it is. I, and I don't and I when I laugh at it, I'm not laughing at Bruce Lee, per se, because they do sort of make Bruce Lee a character in the film. Tarantino was trying to humanize Bruce Lee because. When you think about Bruce Lee, I mean, he almost seems like this unstoppable force. His hands are registered as lethal weapons. As lethal weapons, exactly. Bruce Uh, Lee is there to show you how dangerous Brad Pitt is. Exactly, exactly. And So I I really like the scene. I can understand why uh, Bruce Lee's family maybe takes some issue with how it's portrayed. But I don't think that Tarantino, because Tarantino is like a longtime fan of Bruce Lee. So I don't think he was trying to make... Bruce Lee look bad. I don't think he was trying to use, I don't think he was trying to make Bruce Lee look bad. What I do think he was doing is using Bruce Lee, using the the myth of Bruce Lee as a mm-hmm. device to right. show us how deadly Brad Pitt's character is. But I don't think that we can stop talking about Brad Pitt's character um without talking about the Spawn Ranch scene, which Ooh. maybe <laughs> I mean, I don't like to be hyperbolic, about, especially about movies I just saw. But mm-hmm. what a scene! Oh. What a what a ratcheting up of tension in a in a movie where no no magic happens. That this is not science fiction. You would think that the devil would come up from the earth in this scene, and I wouldn't be surprised by that. Yeah. Um, and honestly, not a lot of violence in this scene either. Yeah, not really, not a lot of violence in the Quentin Tarantino movie. I was kind of surprised at how restrained it was, but yeah, so... I love that, by the way. I love Oh, that. I did Spawn Rant scene. But to give some context, so two different times, Cliff Booth passes by uh, this hippie named, Margaret, or named Pussycat, played by Margaret Qualley, and agrees to give her a lift, and... In the you know in their discussion, he's like, "Oh, like I'm you live out at Spawn Ranch, and this is this old ranch where he used to shoot the TV western that Rick Dalton was a star on." He's aware that like this older man, George Spawn, lives and owns this ranch, and so he's sort of going out there to kind of make sure that the check it out aren't, to check to check it out to make sure that they're not sort of freelancing on him, and when he arrives. He ar- he stumbles onto the Manson family. The uh, shot where where Pussycat is like dragging him by the hand. She's walking very uh, swiftly, and he's like just he's getting dragged behind her. Amazing. Yeah, he's taking Amazing. his time. He does. You yeah. know, he's he wants and, to get uh, the lay of the land. And he, you know, he points up to this house where there are other hippies hanging out, and that's the one where they're kind of in there smoking weed, just watching old like music videos and tv the scene turns really fast because right away they're just like no you can't you can't go see him right now and they try to make up some weird excuse that it's his nap time and he's napping uh, yeah he's taking a nap and brad pitt 
is like, well, I'm going to go see him anyways. Like he, perhaps he just woke up. And so he goes up to where he encounters uh, Dakota Fanning's character, who is, to me, she is almost unrecognizable, who Brad Pitt refers to as red because of her red hair. She finally came. All right, hold on, hold on. So, oh, so in that sorry. conversation, yeah. you got to say this because it's such an awesome two-shot between these two characters mm. where they're talking between a screen door. Yes. And so, A, he puts the camera at an askew angle Yes. And he shoots these this actor and this actress through the screen door. So you see their face through the screen door. And yeah. she's like, hey, they're sleep. He's sleeping because I miss my TV time with him. We're going to watch FBI later on a night. And if he doesn't take a nap, he won't stay up for it. Right. And with the askew camera angle, you know, it, it lends even more to something's not quite right what's going on everybody's like staring at him while he's standing up on the porch yeah before he goes in he turns back and you've got you know the whole clan out there just eyeing down yeah yeah and so he goes into this house right out of the gate you see this rat caught in a rat trap in the corner that's kind of you know crying and and whatnot okay so you see this rat that's like struggling with a trap on the floor which you think might be a symbol for this guy who owns the ranch uh, getting caught in the web of the Manson yeah. family, or at least that's the connection that I made. Exactly. Yeah, and and I think that's what Brad Pitt is is, is in hit in Cliff Booth's mind as well, is that they're taking advantage of him, possibly even something more sinister than that. So he makes his way uh, through the house and into the room where George is asleep. After and Red, after Red shows him where it is by pointing with her foot. With her foot. Boy, the foot yeah, which thing. Is a, we're, we'll get to that. We will yeah. get to that, I promise. <laughs> yeah, the foot, the foot thing was really came out here. Uh, so he goes in and like, and she even tells him, she's like, you're going to have to shake him awake because I effed his brains out this morning, <laughs> you know? And uh, yeah. again, it's just like, what, you're, the whole time you're like, what, what is, is going what? on? What yeah. is going on? Yeah. What's, what's happening here? So he goes in and he does have to shake him awake. And blind, Cliff has to tell him two or three times who he is. Uh, and he just, he's just like, I have no idea who you are. Like, you know, what are you doing here? Oh, you know, I used to shoot this show with Rick Dalton. And, you know, he's like, Rick who? And, and there's this. Yeah, he has Cliff, no idea who this guy is. No, no idea. But he's like, you know, look, I just wanted to make sure uh, you were okay. And. He, George, basically, you know, curses him and he's like, look, she, lo she loves me, so suck on that. It's, it's apparent that they are taking advantage of him, but he is so kind of senile and blind and just not all there that he just, he's unaware, or maybe he really just, you know, is he's okay with it. But, but and yeah. what you would expect to happen in a Quentin Tarantino movie is death and destruction, and it doesn't happen. Yes, yeah. You can only do that after nine movies or yeah. eight movies. You yeah, know? no, I, yeah. <laughs> you don't go out on the first one and build it up like that and then have nothing yeah. happen. Uh, and of course, they send off for one of the other male hippies who's off on horseback giving a, a like a horse horseback Tex. riding tour. And yeah, so he's, they he, they are like, go get Tex, like, get him down here right now. Uh, and so when by the time Tex returns. Uh, the tire's been fixed, and Cliff Booth is, is on his merry way. So kind of the big 
crescendo of the scene never happens. Even though you get a punch and he makes the dude fish, fix the tire, you right. think that this showdown between Tex and Cliff is going to happen and it never happens. I don't think you could have done that scene with anybody but Brad Pitt. I the agree. Co- the coolness that he portrays. Brad Pitt has this thing where you know it's Brad Pitt, you see yeah. that it's Brad Pitt, but he can embody a character like a character actor can. Yeah. That kind of dichotomy between a, a movie star and a character actor really is only embodied in one other person, which is Leonardo DiCaprio. Yep. It's a it's a it's a crime that we haven't talked about Leo's performance in this movie yet. Oh. But he chews up scenery like a mama bear on a rampage in this <laughs> in this movie. Good way to yeah, someone's messing with the baby and Leo Exactly. Is the mama. Yeah. And he's just stomping on that back, you know. <laughs> Leonardo DiCaprio portrays Rick Dalton who's yep. kind of this this has been actor mm. and on top of that he portrays him with this kind of stutter. Yeah. which is w- weird for an actor. Really, when he's acting, he does not have a stutter. Drinking all the time, he is obviously in the throes of alcoholism. He loses time like an alcoholic would uh, yeah. when he's speaking to the lead actor on Lancer, um, and the lead actor is kind of talking to him about this role that he might have had. You only get bits and pieces of the conversation, which is just brilliant. If you've ever been drunk before, you know that feeling of like, hey, I'm midway through a sentence that I didn't hear the beginning of. (laughs) (laughs) He's he's tearing up at random moments, Um, not the moments that you would really think that he would tear up in, but he has this amazing scene with this young actress on the set of Lancer. Yes. The real name of the actress is Julia Butters. Yeah. And she's kind of explaining um, character acting to him while he's reading this novel that is obviously a symbol of his own career about this Bronco Busters who is too old to Bronco Bust. Yeah, I don't know what to say except for what Julia Butter said, which is that's the best acting I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I agree. I, I really think that this is one of, if not Leonardo DiCaprio's best performances. This movie also made me realize that he is one of the funniest actors alive. The scene where you talk about where he sort of gets emotional actually struck a chord with me emotionally it's a funny scene but i was i actually like really felt for him in the moment she tries to console him <laughs> you know she's yeah. this little girls like trying like to console eight years this, old yeah. yeah trying to console <laughs> this grown man but it's it's so it's heart-wrenching and hilarious kind of in the same breath yeah and unlike the brad pitt character where you really see him defined in how he interacts with other people. The mm-hmm. Leo character, he's really defined by how he feels about himself and the yes. inner turmoil that he's going through, which is just a classic actor. His scene, his like big movie scene, is inside his trailer. After he's <laughs> messed up some lines in Lancer, goes into his trailer, he starts throwing things, cuss him at himself. You're better than this. I can't believe you. Yeah. <laughs> um, you got to stop drinking. And then he does this thing, Sean. And uh, you've seen actors look into cameras before. You've seen them look in the mirrors that is, are actually looking at the camera before. But he is scolding himself, telling yes. himself that he can do better in a mirror, and the image of his face in the mirror is looking directly at the camera. Yes. Like, 
almost telling the audience, you can do better than this. You should expect better than this. And it was a little bit over the top, but, it, but in it an works. actor way. Yeah, in yes. an actor way where you believe this guy. And just like an alcoholic, he tells himself not to drink and then almost by yes. instinct picks up the drink and drinks it, you know? That's, that's <laughs> one of my favorite moments in the whole tirade. As he's, you know, he's sitting there. Why'd you have to have eight whiskey sours left? That you couldn't just stop at three or four. Like now, it doesn't look like you rehearsed the line, and it's so funny because you know. And then he has the he like looks at himself in the mirror and he's like, "If you don't get your lines right on in the you know this next part of the day, I'm gonna take you home and I'm gonna blow your brains out all by the pool," <laughs> you know. <laughs> Yeah, and if you have ever failed at anything that you love, if you've ever failed at anything that you thought you were really good at, you know that feeling. Oh, like, the only thing I, I give value to myself with is acting, and yeah. I couldn't even do that. Chapter three. Six foot, seven foot, eight foot plunge. Oh, the feet, Sean. The many, many feet. You know, it's... Obviously, uh, he was joking about the feet, right? <clears throat> he knew knows that everybody is obsessed with him showing feet on camera, and he just showed everybody's feet. He was just... Yeah, I think this one, even it even has men's feet in it. It's not just... Oh, it's got Brad, Brad Pitt's uh, moccasins, like, seven times. Brad Pitt's moccasins, the hippie that he knocks off, you see those feet fly right off the dirt ground. <laughs> I mean, the cowboy I, boots in the, in the, the Western scenes. Yeah, I think this I think this one, I think there probably was a contract where it's like, if you're going to be in it, you got to show your feet. It's like a nudity contract, and, but with feet. And dirty, dirty feet, just the, dirty. the dirtiest feet, just walking yeah. around in mud. Sharon yeah. Tate's feet when she's at the movie theater. Just I, noticed, I noticed that on the, the second time. I, I didn't notice it the first time, but yeah, I was like. Boy, like, did she just decide not to put on socks before she goes out? Like, <laughs> pussy, I mean, they... pussy cat when she has her feet on the dashboard, they're dirty too. They're dirty. Right up against the windshield of his car. Oh, I mean, was... get your feet off my dashboard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, like, all right, pussy cat. Like, I, I get you're a, a flirtatious one, but like, let's, you know, I'm going to have to clean this tonight now. Like, come on. <laughs> I just love the meta joke. My question for you about the feet, mm. and I, I wanted to take it seriously. I wanted to yeah. analyze what he means when he shows feet. I think that there is some type of sexuality in it, but I also think you almost never see feet in movies on purpose. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, they shoot actors kind of waist up. They want you to see their face, and it does humanize people a little bit. You're going to give me that? Is that a good theory that, that I these are actual people? Yeah. Oh, totally. I mean, I think that again, you ha have these people with dirty feet. If I go out in, in my shoe, in my slip on shoes, my feet look like I've walked through a tar pit when I come back in. And I think that does put some humanity even into the Manson family where it's like, they're just people. They're just people like anybody else. Sharon Tate, we were talking before about how Quentin Tarantino was using, using Bruce Lee, the, the mythical figure, as a device to show how dangerous Brad Pitt is. Correct. I don't think he did that with Sharon Tate. I don't think she's just a shell of a, a symbol 
for the movie. I do think she is a symbol. I think she's a symbol, a little bit of, of lost potential. This is someone unlike Cliff Booth and Rick Dalton, who are at the tail end of their careers. Sharon Tate is just starting her career. Right. So even though she, she never really does anything that most people would say is of substance. You see her watching the wrecking crew, which she's in, and she is very funny and she seems to have a lot of charisma in this amazing scene and the whole her whole story before she gets pregnant is is beautiful it kind of is a fairy tale while she's walking around hollywood stopping by the bookstore she's loving every minute she's smiling a big smile and she sees this movie theater where her movie is playing and she walks into this movie theater and i'm sure you've seen movies before that will show a character watching a movie so Mm -hmm. the character is looking directly at the the audience so yeah. you're a, a person in a movie theater watching a person in a movie theater. Yeah. The difference is Sharon Tate is in the movie that she's watching. So yeah. you're watching Sharon Tate watch Sharon Tate. Yeah. That, and she's smiling and she's seeing how the audience is reacting to her. And yeah, there's not a lot of dialogue, but there's so much character development in that. Do you agree? I totally agree. So I've got a, a theory here as well. So in that scene, I think, ties back into this notion of wanting to be relevant because she shows up to this movie theater that's playing the wrecking crew. She even sort of does like a, almost like a little dance up to the box office window. She's loving every second of, of what she's doing. And then she sits down and, and, you know, she's, as you say, she's watching the audience react. She's watching the movie, but she's looking at the audience reactions And I mean, it's like she's on cloud nine. I mean, she's so happy that people are receptive of what she's doing. And so it's the same notion of Rick and Cliff wanting to be relevant, but it's where they're on their way down. She's on her way up. I don't know if you have ever dated actresses before. I did it. I went to Northwest School of the Arts. It's a lot of the girls are actresses. And if you've ever seen, look, take it, take the 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 gender out of it if you've ever seen a performer watch other people watch their performance mm. um, that's exactly how they react just some sh- other shout outs kind of other characters in the the movie that are ancillary we already talked about julia butter's amazing performance as the mm. young actress in lancer they populated the manson family with children of hollywood which i thought was interesting you got lena dunham in there you've got you mentioned before that the daughter of uma thurman is in the movie as well yeah i don't know what he's trying to say with that but i think he's trying to say a lot with that quentin tarantino has said that he's probably not going to be making films for much longer and so you have these people that are on their way out next generation it's the next generation and so the girl that plays pussycat is the daughter of Andy McDowell. Yeah, you could also call it nepotism. You could also call it the rich getting richer, but we won't go there. (laughs) Chapter four, the tattoo tango. So Sean, you uh, have multiple tattoos. I do. Having to do with Quentin Tarantino movies, I um, do. You, in fact, have a tattoo for every one of his movies, 
except for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, correct? That that is correct. Except now for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I'm still still building up the rapport of of you know the repertoire of what what uh, I can get. So sure. So <laughs> I thought that I would maybe give you some options and see how you reacted to okay. some of the things some of the things that I saw in the movie. I think yeah. you should just get like the bad reviews of this movie tattooed on your body, but. <laughs> I decided not to go there. So my first recommendation, and you can just you just accept or deny this or talk about it or not. It's not a big deal. I loved the sound of the dog chow coming out of the dog can when he yeah. was feeding Brandy. So, and I thought that the dog can label was pretty cool. So you want to get some dog a dog food can tattooed on your body? I would. I've got some smaller stuff like I, uh, from Jackie Brown. I've got the Delphonics tapes. Uh, as well as the poison coffee pot from the hateful eight, so the can of dog food would fit sort of in to that. There you go. Cool. So in that same vein, how about the acid dipped cigarette? It'd be yeah. super weird for you to get a cigarette on your body, but if you did it like acid washed, so yeah. that people would know that it was acid dipped, I think that would be a cool idea. That would be cool, and I, I think if you're going to go that route. You need to have like a little pack of the red apples that are in all this stuff and then have a lone acid dip kind of maybe it's like coming out of the pack. My next suggestion is we're going to do Julia Butters, the <laughs> young actress in the director's chair with her feet propped up. Yeah. Um, I she's, just love she's, that. She is there to do a job and to be a professional. And yeah, she's she is not looking to cut it up with with DiCaprio or anyone else. Yeah, no, I'm not, that option. one. That would probably be. I'd probably take a pass on that. I think that would be <laughs> weird in a lot of ways, more ways than one. I think. <laughs> okay, and then the other two involve Rick Dalton. One yeah. is Rick Dalton crying in his cowboy getup with yep. the handlebar mustache and the long hair with his like chin tucked to his chest kind of thing yeah so he's got like all those rolls i love that idea yeah i i would uh, i've actually got leonardo dicaprio from django and chain so i've got him in a, a in a racist cowboy <laughs> right now oh leo. double leo a double, yeah. do i do double leo <laughs> do you I'm dare double leo <laughs> Okay, so let me give you my my number one idea. Yep. Is Rick Rick Dalton in the end of the movie yep. where he's in his like in his like uh water soaked robe with the flamethrower <laughs> on? Yeah. So he's got a flamethrower and maybe there's flames coming out of the flamethrower. I don't know. I... And you could do it back to back with the Django Leo. Yeah. Like a or like a nineties rap album or something. <laughs> Yeah. It's like Outcast, but with two Leos, you know. Those are the images that really came out to me. Chapter 5, Happily Ever After, Helter Skelter. Set me free, the ending of this movie, Sean. Boy, howdy. Um, <laughs> this is where... The the Tarantino heads, the the Al Pacinos of the world who are yeah. looking for their blood and looking for the killing and looking for the gross violence and looking for revenge. They all they get it in this ending. Yes. Yeah. This is so we talked earlier about the, the fight at Spawn Ranch, the where Brad Pitt punches the Manson family member. And there's a mm -hmm. little bit of there's a little bit of blood in that but it's not it's like a broken nose i mean it's a little bit it's not over the top he'll be this, fine 
Yeah, he'll be okay. This is the scene where it's like, whoa, daddy, we are in a Quentin Tarantino movie. I mean, it gets, it escalates quick and the violence is brutal. So he got the approval of Sharon Tate's sister before they went into filming. And I got to tell you, and I, I had the same reaction in uh, Django. I didn't like seeing it. I, I yeah. cringe when I, when I see, especially when a man is killing a woman in yeah. such a gruesome way, banging her mm-hmm. head against the mantle, even though the woman is trying to kill him. The woman is trying to kill the wife. Yeah. Um, it just, I have that guttural reaction. Now here's yeah. the difference, Sean. That's what I think he was going for. But I also think you should cringe at this. This is, yeah. you know, this, that, that is also an emotional reaction and that's sure. what he's going for. Yeah. And to, to, to paper everything in the, in the world, in the country, all art with like, hey, you shouldn't show bad things. You yeah. shouldn't show bad people. You shouldn't show people being racist in movies. It's just the opposite of what I think we should be trying to do. Absolutely. Um, yeah. yeah. I, I think that he's taking the hero character of Cliff Booth and he's breaking it down with the murder of his wife and the murder of these people. He's, yeah. He's uh, in, inverting the, the hero story, which is... You know, that's what I love about this movie. He sicks his dog, his pit bull, which the sound design on what that dog does to Tex, where, I mean, it's basically grabbed him by the arm and by the groin, and you just hear it tearing and him screaming. Sound design on that. This is Grindhouse. Yeah, I was like, whoa. Like, I mean, and and that's not even overly bloody. It's just like, holy cow, like the sounds that are coming out of this it's like man like i mean it's it's violent and yeah uh, can we talk about before before the violence starts the interaction between tex and cliff yeah all right so so tex tex says a historically accurate thing apparently yes where he says i'm what is Uh, what is the line you remember i'm the devil and i'm here to do the devil's work and Cliff's like, I, I, I remember you. I, I remember yeah. you. What was your name? And then he said the devil thing. And yeah. Cliff's like, nah, it was stupider than that. Yeah, it was, it was dumber than that. And then yeah, it was like Rex. <laughs> yeah, it was Rex or something. And that, that yeah, and whole. This is yeah. classic Tarantino, right? It is. This is, yeah, this this is, is Kill Bill. This is the Django. This yeah. is the funny with the, with the serious. It's building suspension. You know something's about to go down, but it's peppered with this comedy throughout it so eventually the the woman who is still breathing crashes through the back door or the back glass uh, sliding door where rick dalton is waiting drunk in the pool listening to records (laughs) brings out the flamethrower from the previous scene (laughs) and just scorches her and it's 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 violent and i and and funny I don't condone violence for women, but it's hysterical. He takes a, you know, he walks out. He's just kind of like, he's drunk. I mean, that's what's so funny about it is how drunk he is to light this girl on fire with a with an old World War II flamethrower. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. So I want to skip. There's other things to get to. There's the ending of the friendship where he says, you've been a good friend. But yeah. there's just so much in this movie. We need to skip to the end. So he's walking up the driveway. He's been invited to Sharon Tate's house. Yeah. And sh- pregnant Sharon Tate, who has not been killed by the Manson family, comes out, greets him, invites him in for a drink. And yeah. the camera pans like up but you're still on the driveway so it kind of i don't know the word for it you might wear it just pans up and you see the cars in the driveway and it says once upon a time in hollywood yeah which means he's been telling us a fairy tale the entire time the whole time he he boldly took a real life horror movie a real life tragedy and said what if Things had played out just a little differently because of how he portrays Sharon Tate throughout the movie. I thought it was just—it was such a sweet ending. I mean, even with that scene of violence, it was such a—it's such a sweet movie. It's there's a warmth to it that's not in some of his other stuff. But I thought, what a just a, a warm, sweet ending to what is a Quentin Tarantino fairy tale. I really loved it. I love this movie too. There was obviously bad critical response. I think anytime Quentin Tarantino does anything in 2019, people are going to yeah. get upset about it. Unfortunately, um, and, yeah. And, yeah, and that's not to discount the way people feel. Everybody's going to feel different about a movie. I, it, it doesn't surprise me that people are upset about Quentin Tarantino movies. They've been yeah. upset since he's been, he was cutting ears off of people. Yeah, um, exactly. So you want to know the the bad critical response to this movie. Lord knows there are multiple avenues on the internet for you to find that. Yeah, um, totally. <laughs> yeah. But this is a, a podcast in part about Quentin Tarantino and how much we, we love what he does and we love the movies and we'll take issue with the stuff that we want to take issue with. But this movie made $41 million at the box office. It's his best opening ever. So yeah. we're not yeah. alone in liking this movie. Yeah, and you know the critical response in general was pretty positive. I mean, it got great reviews kind of across the board. So, give me your final thoughts on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. You you said that you liked the movie. You think it's his best ending ever, which we'll get to an episode where maybe we can list some stuff about what the best scenes he's done, the best movies he's done, that kind of stuff. But uh, I think in the end, it was a fairy tale not only about Hollywood, but about the potential of humans to interact with each other and interact Mm -hmm. with the world. You know, in in my mind, the story is about this friendship between two men, you know, and and just maintaining that friendship throughout their careers. It was obvious that it was a love letter to cinema. It was a love letter to Hollywood. It was a love letter to Sharon Tate. Thank you so much for listening to the second episode of The Swift Shift. Do me a favor, if you've listened to this episode, please review us. Tell us what you think. Give us some feedback. We'd love to get better at this. We'd love to hear what you think. If you have listened to the episode, please subscribe. We're on every way you can do podcasting now. We're on iTunes. We're on Google Play. We're on Spotify. Rate us there. Please rate us high, if you don't mind, and subscribe (laughs) to the podcast. Uh, Sean, where can people find you? Where can people find your work? If you want to find my Instagram, it's just Sean W. Swift. That's S-H-A-U-N-W-S-W-I-F-T. If you find me on Twitter, it is just Sean Swift 5. So S-H-A-U-N-S-W-I-F-T 
and the number five. If you want to learn about when this podcast is going to come out and what else we're doing in the podcast realm, I'm on Instagram and on Twitter at the85pod. That is literally all I do with my Twitter and Instagram, so you won't get any of my hot takes on Donald Trump or anything like that. If you <laughs> want to contact us, you can contact us at the85pod at gmail.com. And I think the only way to leave it is this, Sean. I can't memorize the name of every fascist who was on TV in the 50s, Sadie. <laughs>